Hello and welcome to Life of the School, episode 95. My name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher from Acton-Boxborough Regional High School in Acton, Massachusetts. Each episode of Life at the School, I like to sit down with a fellow life science teacher and ask them, how did they get in the classroom? What are they currently working on? And what are their hopes for the future? This episode, I sit down with Hannah Hathaway. Hannah is a biology teacher at Denver School of Science and Technology, Montview, in Denver, Colorado. Before joining DSST, Hannah worked for over a decade in biomedical research labs from clinical hematology to neuropharmacology. She has also taught collegiate courses in pharmacology and molecular biology. Hannah is the co-coordinator for the recently formed Denver pod of 500 women scientists. This is an organization that works to promote diversity, inclusivity, and equity in science. You can follow Hannah on Twitter at HathawayPhD. Welcome, Hannah. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's nice to be on uh, at the same time. Uh, last time we were together, you were live streaming and I was moderating uh, a yes. for an AP course. So, <laughs> Yes, and there was always a, a bit of a lag there, but those live streams have been um, really valuable for my students. They've really been enjoying them. Yeah, and uh, but we were we were chatting a little bit as we were organizing this that um, I did I did mine on labs um, a couple weeks later, and I realized after volunteering for it that I didn't really feel like I had any sort of structure for doing it because everybody does different labs, and I kind of I you know I'm not somebody who panics, and I'm used to doing like audiovisual stuff, and I was like, oh no, what am I supposed to do here? <laughs> it's probably the most nervous I've been doing something in a while, so um, it was very nerve wracking to do the live stream. I thought it was nerve wracking too. And now, now that I've gone back and looked at them, they all have like 5,000 views, which in my universe is a lot. So yeah. I'm like, okay, I think I was justified in feeling a little nervous. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, and I was like, you know, when we were doing them live, there was like, you know, a few dozen people on them, but by that night there were like hundreds and like, I know mine just like two or three days later was like at a thousand views. And I'm like, Oh uh, yeah. Kids are checking these out. Kids are watching these and, and they, they have, there's a definitely a need here for this live stream. Um, yep. So yeah, it was definitely, you know, as I said, I, I always know that uh, when I get uncomfortable doing something, um, that it was probably a good choice because I probably learned something. Um, I just don't know what I've learned from doing it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> other than other than live streaming is, is harder than uh, I, I anticipated before I signed up. So it really is. Yeah, especially over YouTube. Um, with I don't know how people deal with the lag if somehow they've figured that out, but it makes it so much harder, I feel like. Yeah, so my 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 seventeen year old son asked me why we weren't doing it over Twitch. Um, <laughs> I know because he said because he's like it's only like a four second lag there. It's like so much easier. It's like you should totally be doing it over Twitch. And I was like, all right, all of the olds I'm working with, like, we can barely do the YouTube thing. Like we're not gonna get the we're not gonna get Twitch down. <laughs> yeah, and the the moderating on Twitch all of a sudden becomes like much more serious. I feel like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So no, the moderating was a huge help, and um, it was yeah. you know big kudos to Lee Ferguson for for doing that. Yes. Um, Oh my that. gosh, she's amazing. Yeah, yeah, Lee. Lee, Lee's become an old friend, and um, and yeah, it, it was amazing to see sort of see the community that's grown up around people organizing that. So um, it's it has been one of the uh, more 
like warm professional things that I've been involved with these last you know two months. Yeah, I've I've really um, appreciated and enjoyed being involved in it since I'm a new biology teacher. I feel like I'm starting to make some connections in this field that I'm pretty new in, and so it's been really enjoyable for me, and it's making me excited to have a time when we're all back in person again and I can meet some of you all in real life. <laughs> <laughs> well, with that as a segue, I cannot help but then take that and uh, I'm sure we'll bring back to the live streaming again, but that you've opened the door. And so uh, I got to I gotta wonder like how it is, you know, a woman who has gone through the process of getting a PhD become a high school science teacher. Uh, <laughs> like well, I, I always ask, what did you do before? But I, I know a little bit of what you did before, but maybe you can go in a little more detail. Like what was the transition from, you know, PhD candidate, postdoc to the classroom? How, how did that arc work? Yeah. Uh, so I've have kind of a, I guess a bit of a non-traditional route to get to teaching. Um, ever since I was really in high school, um, I had a really wonderful biology teacher. His name was Paul Harbaugh. And he was just absolutely phenomenal and really got me interested in biology. And um, through that, I, throughout high school, figured out I wanted to go into biomedical research and that what I really wanted to do was some sort of drug design and development. So 15-year-old oh. Hannah was decided, <laughs> that's what I want to do, drug design and development. Very specific answer. And so I went to college for uh, biochemistry and molecular biology at CU Boulder. And while I was there, um, I was fortunate enough that my grandparents both um, are doctors and they had a lab at CU Anschutz. It wasn't called mm. CU Anschutz then, but it is now. <laughs> and um, through them, I had the privilege of being able to work in a lab pretty early on in college. And so I got to work there for three years and then I worked there full-time a year after I graduated, and that was just really great experience, and I really built my scientific chops and became very confident that I wanted to do science and not medicine, much to the <laughs> disappointment of my grandparents. <laughs> and so I went to um, grad school for pharmacology all along thinking, you know, I'm going to end up in uh, biotech, like private sector. This is what I want to do. And while I was in grad school. Um, oh, I should backtrack and say that my grandparents, what they studied was pediatric hematology. So our lab was focused mm. primarily on bleeding disorders in kids. So your classic hemophilia, sex mm. links traits, all that good stuff. <laughs> um, and then also a lot of, you know, coagulation cascade, the most complicated signaling pathway in the world, as I like to say. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, so I had a lot of background in that from working in that lab for four years on and off. And so when I went to grad school, I was in our um, graduate pharmacology course, which was the team talk course at my school. So a different professor would teach essentially every lecture or maybe a couple lectures. Mm -hmm. And there was one lecture on anticoagulants. And I was so excited, looking forward to it all semester. So I was like, yes, like I'm going to crush this lecture. And the professor who taught it really had no experience with anticoagulants at all. <laughs> he was on an anticoagulant. So that was like his inroad into teaching it. And I asked all these questions and I was like super engaged and like, what about this? And did you know about that during the lecture? And afterwards they were like, you know, do you want to teach this lecture? Because <laughs> you seem to know a lot about it. Um, 
it's like, sure. So that was really the first time I had been approached to teach something. And so um, the next year I dived in and I mean, it's a pretty, looking back, it was a pretty uh, scary thing to do is my first teaching experience, a two hour long lecture to graduate <laughs> students. But I was only yeah. a second year graduate student. <laughs> um, but I really enjoyed it. I taught that lecture all through grad school. And then um, I was fortunate to have some really great mentors in graduate school who encouraged me to keep teaching. I think they saw that um, I really enjoyed teaching and that I had a, a skill for it. So anytime there was a place where, oh, we need someone to do this lecture or this course is looking for someone to help out, they would throw it to me. So I ended up getting like a hodgepodge of uh, expertise or just uh, what's the word I'm looking for? When you do something, experience, a hodgepodge of experience uh, mm-hmm. throughout grad school. And then as I was graduating, I was starting to think, you know, I don't think I want to go private sector anymore. I definitely want to teach in some capacity. I could go your classic academic route, tenure track, but that never was all that appealing to me. Um, as much as I loved research, I there's a lot of things I don't love about academic science, like the incredibly competitive nature of it that I mm-hmm. was not super invested in. Um, but I wasn't quite ready to leave the bench yet, so I decided to do a postdoc. And um, I was, once again, very fortunate that my postdoc mentor was pretty flexible um, and let me in, sort of investigate this teaching passion I had. And so um, I got to teach an entire course. So this is the first course I got to teach by myself. Um, uh, one spring while I was in or doing my postdoc. Uh, so I was still working full-time as a postdoc and teaching a three-credit graduate molecular biology course on a different campus. Um, wow. So that was challenging. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I learned a ton. And I think the most important thing I learned is I was working absolutely crazy hours. We were submitting an R01. I had a talk mm-hmm. at a conference that semester. And then I was like lesson planning and grading and lab prepping for this course. And I would leave uh, late because the course went from five to, or was three to six. So I usually be there later trying to figure out grading and stuff. And whenever I left, I would leave just so like jazzed up (laughs) from teaching and getting to interact with these students. And like, it was only 16 students. So I got to know them all a lot better than I usually did in these team talk courses. Um, and it was just so fun. And that's when I was like, this is what I want to do. Like, if I can work a 14-hour day and at the end of the day leave and feel energized, like, that that's what I should be doing. So at that point, I pretty much knew I wanted to teach. It just was kind of how do I get there? And then how I ended up teaching high school, this is this is becoming a very long story. But <laughs> I mean, I've, got, I've got like a laundry list of questions to ask from it. So just, I can't, I'm now I'm like dying to know the, the punchline. How, how does, so now you're the postdoc, how do you get from postdoc to classroom? Yeah, so um, this also segues nicely into something else we've already brought up. Um, so while I was a postdoc, I also uh, was really involved with our postdoc association, which mm-hmm. is kind of like student council, but for postdocs is the best analogy. So we put on a, uh, like a career panel every year for postdocs. And, um, we always try to bring in people who aren't in the traditional tenure track faculty, uh, positions. Cause like, obviously you know about that, but what else can you do with a PhD and with a postdoc? 
And so I was at a 500 women scientists happy hour <laughs> and there was this woman there, uh, Erica Foley, who works at the school I work at now. And she has a PhD. And I was like, oh my gosh, you should come to our career panel. I've always wanted to know more about K through 12 teaching. I feel like that's a really underrepresented career option for people with PhDs. Um, like, please come talk to our career panel. And so I got her contact info and she was like, you know, I, she put me in contact with someone else who actually did up, end up coming and talking on our career panel with someone who had done a postdoc. Um, and that was great. But she was like, you know, we actually have a position open at our school right now for a biology teacher. Um, so I had coffee with her and we talked about it and I was like, I don't know if I'm really ready yet to like leave the bench. And she was like, well, do you want to teach? Yes, I know I want to teach. And I've always thought about teaching high school. And when I've imagined the high school I would teach at, it's, it was going to be the school I teach at now, which is a science and tech focused charter school. It's mm -hmm. only like a mile from my house. <laughs> um, it's a great school. They're really committed to addressing like educational inequity. And it just had all of the things I wanted in a school. And it was this biology position that was open. So I was like, okay, I'll apply. I mean, sure. So I applied, did the interviews, did the, you know, guest teaching. And I got the position. I was like, okay, well, I guess it's fate. And so uh, I left my postdoc pretty quickly <laughs> within like a month. And two days later started uh, our little summer intensive for new teachers and was just thrown into it at first. Wow. So now because it's a charter school, is the accreditation the same? Is it different? How does, how does that work in Colorado? Right. So um, because it's a charter school, they have the flexibility to sort of decide uh, what they're going to do for accreditation, at least for in Colorado. So mm -hmm. you are not required to have a teaching certificate as long as you have um, at least uh, like, a, I can't remember how many hours it is, but it's a significant number of hours in your discipline. Um, so usually it would be like, you probably have to have at least a master's in mm -hmm. that discipline. So just an undergrad degree in biology probably wouldn't be enough. Uh, but since I had a PhD, I was good to go. And then plus I had um, various teaching experience from other places. So it's not like I was a complete noob. <laughs> mm, yeah. Yeah. So it was interesting as you were talking about like the, the various places in the pathway, because it brought up a lot of the, the questions I have. You know, I often think back like I... I stumbled a hundred percent backwards into the, like my career path. Like I obviously I, I found that I was very good at interacting and teaching and that sort of thing early on. Um, but there was a moment in time when, you know, I was an undergrad, I was doing research. I was being told I was pretty good at it. Um, I was actually talked to some people at some graduate programs and I like kind of thought about it a little bit, but like, you know, I didn't really know what I was doing. Uh, nobody in my family had ever, had a graduate degree like like the concept of graduate school was like really never on my radar um like going to college was on my radar and even at that I was one of the the first people for my family to go to college so the concept of of graduate school wasn't even part of the picture and by the time it was it was I just thought oh well I'm, I've finished college I need to go off and do some things but there was a, a moment when I thought about that pathway and I was totally ignorant of what career pathways would have been beyond that nobody ever put in the idea that I would have like these different pathways I was going to say um and I I I think back to like all the conversations I've had with people who have gone down the the pathway of 
like getting a doctorate and the pathway of getting like tenure track positions and the types of career pathways that are out of there. And I was curious if like when you said, oh, well, maybe I won't go to industry. Maybe I'll go to tenure track. If there was any like feeling of, you know, the positions not being there, like the the competition to find tenure track positions or to find quality spots that were out there afterwards, if if there was any pressure from you from those externalities that I know how challenging it is to get a tenure track job. Uh, yeah. So that was um, part of the hesitation I had to put my sights on tenure track. Mm -hmm. um, it is just so incredibly challenging to get a tenure track job. Um, I also was pretty committed to want to live in certain places in mm. the country. So I'm from Denver from Colorado and I uh, went to graduate school in Washington, DC, but then after that really realized how much I miss being <laughs> home and miss yeah. my family and really wanted to be closer to them. So if you are already trying to get a tenure track job and then you limit your, your search <laughs> yeah. to a specific locale, it's incredibly challenging, especially in a place like Denver, where we only have a couple universities. If you were in like you know, Boston or the Bay area or something, you could probably make it work. Uh, yeah. but it's a little more challenging here. So, um, that was just sort of a, sort of a rational, uh, thought yes. process that I, I was like, I don't think this is something I really want to put myself through. <laughs> um, yeah. and then in terms of like other career options, when I was in graduate school, um, they did a pretty good job of trying to tell us about other career options. Mm -hmm. um, but definitely when I was in undergrad or in high school, I did not really know about any of those options. When I was in undergrad, I really thought it was, well, if you go to grad school and you get a PhD, you can either <laughs> go into industry and like work at a pharma company mm -hmm. or you can be a professor. Like I really thought those were the only two things that people had done because I just didn't know anyone else who had a PhD who did those things. Um, yeah. So that is one nice thing about teaching high school with a PhD is I'm uh, sort of, my students get to see some other career options. Um, we actually have two other teachers or three teachers on staff who have PhDs at our school. Uh, so I think students are well exposed to <laughs> some alternative career paths for graduate school. Um, it's also nice because I think a lot of people don't realize that uh, graduate school is something that you can do, at least if you're getting a PhD, and you don't have to take on more debt. Uh, most PhD programs in the United States are fully funded and they actually pay you a stipend. Mm -hmm. And I would say 90% of my students are not aware of that when I tell them that. So the wow. sooner you can let them know, I think that's always a good thing. I, I'll be honest, like it would have never dawned on me as many of the, you know, scientists who I, I knew it wasn't until I started working with students on job shadowing type projects and sort of um, going back as like a grown up to work in the in a lab for the summer that I realized, oh, the person who runs this lab doesn't have a bench spot, never picks up a pipette. Mm -hmm. only writes grants like that is what he does like that he he runs this lab and yeah he runs lab meeting but he doesn't ever come into the lab yeah. um and i think that had i gone down the path of being a you know 
pursuing a PhD, I don't know that I'd want to leave the bench. Like the bench is where science happens to me. And I think that that would have been another struggle beyond the the challenge of finding the position. Um, I think the, the pursuit of science is the fun part. Yes. I, I used to feel that way. <laughs> and then I got real burnt out on working with mice. <laughs> I was oh. like, you know what? I don't think I'm going to miss the bench too much. I do miss, weirdly enough, like pipetting. But uh-huh. there's enough pipetting in lab prep for AP bio that it keeps me satisfied. So I'm like, I'm still using all of this dexterity I have gained, like opening tubes one-handed. I can still show off my one party trick. <laughs> yeah, I never, I never did mouse work. Uh, I've, I was, uh, I was in plant labs, and I've been in micro labs. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, that sounds a lot better. Yeah, I mean, everyone has their, or everything has their pros and its con- their yeah, cons, the, but. The- Biggest Ooh. animal I've ever worked with is a fruit fly. So, um, <laughs> yeah, fruit flies, they sound great. <laughs> yeah, I've, fruit flies, sea elegans. Uh, and then, yeah, we worked, plants we worked with were big, but they didn't bite or scratch or. <laughs> they yeah, were, the, and the yeah. biting and scratching, you know, they're not so bad. It's mostly just the, they breed so darn slow. <laughs> Mice do. <laughs> and you just sit around waiting. And um, I actually have this story I use with my students for when I introduce uh, chi squared and mm-hmm. statistics and like, what is the point of this? Um, the story I have is a true story about how do I convince my boss, my PI, that we need to switch gears. We've already spent, you know, six months on this project, lots of money on mouse costs, lots of my time. How do we convince her that this is the wrong time? Mm-hmm. Like this is the wrong, the wrong hypothesis. Um, so I have this real data from this mouse line I was breeding that essentially turned out to be embryonic lethal. And uh-huh. so we had, uh, we would expect 25% of the offspring to be knockouts. And I had 20 offspring and zero of them were knockouts. So we do the whole chi-squared. You can't even do a chi-squared really very well with that horrible of data. But then you come to the conclusion that it's a statistically significant difference. Yeah. <laughs> so we, <say laughs> that- we convinced that your boss with, math that's how we do it <laughs> yeah that's great yes <laughs> uh, so so like how so you've been now in the classroom I've, i get my uh my my timeline right now you've now been you're wrapping up a uh, year two as strange yes. a year two as this is uh <laughs> they're not usually like this um <laughs> you know, uh, uh but you're at the end of year two how has the transition from your postdoc work to being a high school teacher how is it going Yeah. I mean, it's been wonderful. Um, Finishing out year two, uh, I mean, obviously this year has been challenging with the stuff happening now. Um, But I think the hardest part about the transition was um, all of the things that I feel like you have to do as a teacher in high school that you don't necessarily have to do as a teacher in higher ed, Um, like calling parents Mm -hmm. and uh, doing like parent-teacher conferences. so that was something that I just hadn't had really any experience with. And so initially that was very just, you know, new and stressful, um, but that's getting better. Hmm. Um, especially recently with all of the um, distance learning, we've been in contact with parents so much more that I feel like it's been good exposure therapy. <laughs> like, well, I'm just calling you all the time. So it gets less scary every time. Um, but in terms of, uh, a lot of other things, I think the transition has been, um, easier than I thought it would be. And I think easier than a lot of people might think at first. Um, 
I'm teaching mostly AP bio. So they're at our school, they're juniors and they're motivated students. And AP bio is such a fun course and you get to do all this lab stuff. And Mm -hmm. it's just been a chance for me to talk about the stuff I love to do every day with people who have to listen to me. So (laughs) (laughs) it has been wonderful. Yeah, and I bet you like the the your histo- your training and all of your experience and research, um, the translating the science practices um, must come so much more natural uh, than I think for somebody who is less used to being in the lab. I, I would imagine that your 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 wealth of experience is such an asset in the AP Biology classroom. Yeah, I do. I do find that the the science practices and um, like inquiry labs are sort of easier. I don't know if they're easier, but they're more comfortable for me. Mm -hmm. Um, The hardest part is just finding time in the year (laughs) to make space for those longer activities. Um, But I've also, when I was in the lab, uh, I did a lot of mentoring of undergraduates and new graduate students and high school students. Um, So I feel like I've had a lot of experience with trying to walk people through protocols and, you know, why do we need these controls and things like that. And so that has been very valuable experience to fall back on for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I, as I said, it, for me, the, 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 the passion that I reinvigorated myself a couple of years ago when I got back in the lab for a summer, um, what was great, like it was energizing, but I think even the bigger takeaway was it sharpened a lot of the skills that you spent, you know, a decade <laughs> like developing. Um, that I, there's times, there's times when I finished that up where I, I said to some of my friends who are college professors and have PhDs, I was like, oh, I kind of wish I had a PhD. And they were all like, why? <laughs> you love what you do. You're good at what you do. It's like, you should come to our lab for the summer. You'll be fine. <laughs> like you just want, you just want to do summer internships. You just, you don't want to, you don't really want to go get a PhD. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think that sounds like a better plan. I know I, I do miss it sometimes. And I'm like, you know, I could always work somewhere at the summer. People always like volunteers. You know, I could, I could always do that. Yeah. I was, I was actually really kind of like one of the things that I, I, I most bummed about is that I have lost a lot of the summer things I normally do. Um, and I had a couple of summer projects, but like all the labs that I was going to go visit, um, I literally was supposed to spend most of my April break, either taking my, uh, my now junior in high school on college visits or going and talking to some college professor friends of mine about like upcoming grants and upcoming work to, to plan on maybe, maybe not this summer, but the following summer spend the time in the lab. And we were going to write up some, some project uh, ideas. And I was like, yep, all that stuff totally evaporated. <laughs> uh, I know. So, yeah. So we'll find some time. I actually have a note next to me that contact some people at a lab. <laughs> I just, I'm like, ah, I'll get to it eventually. They're, they're at home. They're not going in. So yeah, it's uh, gotta be a hard time to be um, in a lab right now. I've been thinking about all my friends who are still in research and I mean, you know, as challenging as e-learning or distance learning has been, our, we can still do it, but yeah. like you can't do mouse work from home. So I can't imagine if you were in a PhD program or in a graduate program and like your graduate degree was dependent upon you finishing assays, like how do you, like, I, I, it must be just very, very crushing to be in that position. Yeah. It sounds very stressful. And my, my thoughts are with everyone who's dealing with that right now because funding and there's timelines on things. So you can't beat the bench. It's, 
Yeah, that's hard. Uh, all right. Well, maybe on a little uptick, um, yeah. <laughs> I want to ask. I want to ask a question about uh, the the 500 women scientist uh, program that you mentioned, and you said that uh, part of your your uh, or maybe very strongly the reason that you transitioned uh, from your postdoc program into uh, the teaching that you're in now was through uh, meeting people with 500 women uh, scientists. So, so what is this program? How'd you connect with it? And, and does it have any impact on your work that you're doing now that you're in a high school? Yeah. So uh, 500 women scientists is um, an international organization and it was started by two women scientists. Um, one of them is actually uh, at CU Boulder and after the 2016 election, they wrote a letter, um, and their goal was to get it signed by 500 scientists. Um, I can't remember. I think it was like published in Scientific American, or maybe they just were kind of passing it around. But it was essentially saying like we pledge to stand on the side of science and to stand against you know inequity and sexism and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so their goal was to get 500 women. Uh, scientists to sign the letter and they ended up getting I think it was like you know 10,000 signatures (laughs) within a month or something they just like absolutely exploded and so from that they turned it into this bigger organization and it's very much um, like a bunch of different they call them pods so different groups that are organized in different regions Um, and each pod is pretty independent so you can kind of do your own thing, but they all have similar goals of um, just being a place for women in science and women in STEM to come together and to network, and then also fostering spaces to do some sort of like, um, what's the word I'm thinking of? Uh, Like advocacy work, Mm. um, a lot of outreach work, things like that. Um, So I, I when was this? Maybe late 2017, um, was looking into trying to join a pod in Denver because there was a very active pod in Boulder because that's where one of the founders um, is located. Uh, But there wasn't really a pod in Denver. And so they started to say, we need some people to take over the Denver pod. So myself and a couple other women um, took over that role. And then at one of our first happy hours, actually, that's where I met uh, (laughs) the person who's at my school now. (laughs) So networking, it works. (laughs) Um, So uh, now we, um, we've had a sort of a rotating committee of people who are helping run our Denver pod. Um, Right now it's just myself and one other woman who is a, works at a patent office, which is such an interesting job for someone who has a PhD also that I feel like you don't hear very Mm. much about. but she's new to that role also. And so we both got new jobs around the same time. And so uh, we've kind of been struggling to keep our activities um, going. So it's been a couple of months actually since we've done anything I'm embarrassed to say, but uh, summer is coming soon. And so then <laughs> that always helps. I can plan a couple months out while I've got some more free time in the summer. Um, but it is nice because it's a, a way to just meet other people who I – are especially are outside of biomedical science, which who are most of the scientists that I know. Mm-hmm. Um, like the other organizer, she her PhD is in chemistry. Um, we have some frequent people who come who are in like 
medical devices or there's someone who is has to do with like water things I don't understand water health <laughs> water systems rivers mm-hmm. um so it's it's really nice and uh it's allowed me also to network with some people um to bring into school a little bit um through this and through another organization I was involved in during my postdoc called Project Bridge which is uh more specifically about bridging the gap project bridge um between scientists and the public so just helping with like science outreach science communication uh public policy things like that um so through that organization I actually had some scientists come in and lead a a morning meeting like an all school assembly at our school earlier this year so it was some very brave graduate students speaking in front of 500 rowdy high school students (laughs) um (laughs) about uh you know, neurotransmitters. And I loved it so much. His analogy he used to explain um, synaptic transmission was uh, throwing candy. So he was like, the one neuron releases the neurotransmitters and he just threw candy into the audience and it was a hit. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So it's, it sounds like, and that was what I was curious about. You you mentioned sort of guest speakers and then obviously bring, bringing people in to do larger school events. I'm thinking about my school and my 2000, um, <laughs> 2000 student school I'm in, uh, having a guest speaker come in and speak to the whole to the whole of the school, which is, uh, I think, logistically impossible in our space. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but yeah, I love the idea of having uh, those connections either to for a guest speaker or, um, you know, you know, if you have a student who maybe is interested in something, you have a network to uh, send things out to, I would imagine, to ask questions or to make connections or or to start that process. Yeah. And it's, yeah. And it, that's been really, really nice and a wonderful resource. Um, actually, through that graduate student who came and gave the candy throwing synaptic transmission talk <laughs> um, at our school, the juniors all do an internship. Uh, Mm -hmm. during their junior year. And there was a student who thought that talk was so interesting. And so he contacted the graduate student and then contacted the PI from that lab and asked if he could do the internship in their lab. And they said, yeah. And um, he had an absolutely phenomenal experience. He would come back after internship and be like, oh my gosh, I learned how to dissect a fruit fly today. It was amazing. (laughs) And he was so excited. And it was so fun because he learned about that experience because of that um, presentation. So awesome. yeah, that's what you want, right? If even one student gets a new opportunity because of that, that is the whole goal. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I I I love the I love the concept of it. Um, I also uh, I think the the thing that also pings for me. Um, I I sometimes forget that the the world that I collate around me, like the 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 way I organize or curate my life, is not the way the world views everything. Um, so like for me, like the concept of five hundred women scientists is like like I'm surrounded by women scientists, like all the time, Um, you know, like I go into labs and, you know, the people I'm collaborating, I'm thinking about like last summer, I was down at uh, at UConn in Nicole Broderick's lab. And like, like, obviously like women scientists, but I I realized that the like archetype that still many people have of a scientist is, you know, you're old white man. And, and I also like the idea of, of having this organization that can help, uh, you know, both, 
bridge the idea of like or break down that sort of model uh, but also can have that outreach and influence beyond just breaking down the 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 misconception of of who a scientist mm -hmm. can be and maybe give students a, um, a view of themselves as a scientist or ideally anyone as a scientist which would be really the goal yes and yeah. um 500 women scientists has done some really cool stuff like they have a uh, database called request a woman scientist where you can go in and it has tens of thousands of scientists in it. And let's say you're writing an article or your students are doing research on a topic and you want them to find some scientists to interview. Like you can go in and put in a topic and a region and it will give you a whole list of scientists who have opted in to being open to being contacted. Um, so it's a really awesome way to just make scientists more accessible to the public. Um, and then they also do things like um, push for, uh, for example, like a big thing they had a couple years ago was at conferences, making mm -hmm. sure there's spaces like nursing rooms and um, like options for childcare, because that's a big issue for women in science, especially for early career scientists is, um, I mean, I think that's true for all early career scientists, that if you choose to have children, it can be um, a barrier, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. But there's data that shows that it's actually more of a barrier for women because um, for some reason, uh, hmm, for some reason, <laughs> it turns to be that uh, men who have children are actually viewed as more uh, impressive, like their status improves after they have children in academia, but uh, it, it gets worse for women. So it's an ongoing issue. Of course, not all women have children, but it's no. still... Uh, something that is an issue and needs to be addressed. Yeah, and I feel like I, I saw it somewhere either, it may have been through with a conversation with my wife, uh, and it may have been on Twitter. I, I, I don't know where anything comes from anymore. Um, but yeah. uh, I, I do think that like there is data about since COVID-19, the, the, you know, there's been a drop in, you know, publications from women um, that, that now that everybody is home, there is definitely not equitable division of what mm -hmm. goes on at home that that when everybody is in that same same shared space um things are not being divided equally and many men's lives have been relatively unaffected they are able to carry on and work from home the way that they always have been um, and women are taking on more responsibility and it's harder for them to get their jobs done. Um, and I think there's some actual data behind um, some publication and other work that has come out um, while we've been in our isolation for the last couple of months. Yeah. Yeah. So it's so, not surprising. Yes. But, yeah. um, but again, finding things out and realizing that even though if it's obvious and everyone should realize it, um, not everyone does. And so it's, it's good to shed light on these type of things. So um, the request a woman scientist uh, may, may make its way into one of the documents I'm working on for a project coming up to finish the year. So um, okay. <laughs> in my little notes, that one not only got written down, it got underlined and asterisked. Yes, uh, because, it is a very, uh, it's a nice resource. Yeah, well, we normally send our, all of our students out to job shadows um, in AP Biology, so like a one-day job shadow type thing. And uh, you know, we cancel. I said this on my last podcast that uh, I canceled it on March 9th this year um, because yeah. I, I saw what was coming. No announcements had been made. Uh, we didn't even have like the like any nobody was talking about it. Like it was like literally two days before sort of everything went 
to pieces. Um, so yeah, it was very interesting because, uh, my birthday was on March 10th. Um, and so my, on March 9th, I canceled like this thing that I put all this time and effort and energy in. And then everybody calls me up on March 10th, my family. And they're like, how you doing? I was like, I got a pandemic for my birthday. Um, and then, which <laughs> as somebody who loves epidemiology was like, that was kind of cool. Um, but, uh, also not so cool, but, uh, and then the, the next day, like literally on March 11th was the day where like the NBA got canceled and like, yep. like within two, I was that two hours where like like the world suddenly realized there was a pandemic uh, between like there was a presidential press conference, the NBA got canceled, like my school announced that we were having a half day Friday. The next day they decided that it was a full day Friday. Like like all everything went bonkers yep. in like a two hour window on that Wednesday night. And I was like, huh, this is kind of, this is going to be interesting. And then nothing has been <laughs> the same ever since. So yep. it was a, a week I will not forget. The birthday week to remember for me. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. So, so how is, uh, so how is distance learning going for you? I mean, obviously, you know, we mentioned that, you know, this is year two and this is not a normal year. And you mentioned that you're calling home a little bit more, but, but like, what is your current workflow? What is, does your school have certain policies? How often do you meet with students? Like what is, what is the wild west that is your school doing (laughs) during this distance learning? Um, We have a very interesting model that I have not heard of another school implementing in quite this way. Mm -hmm. Um, So our charter network, we are, um, oh gosh, seven, six, seven or six high schools around Denver. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what we are doing, and then we also have middle schools, I should mention, we have eight middle schools. Um, So what we are doing is one person is the lead planner for each subject. So for biology, I am the lead planner. So I am essentially making the lessons and the materials for the whole network, Hmm. Um, which is challenging because it's hard to plan for students who you don't know, um, as I'm finding. (laughs) So um, I think the idea with this was it just keeps people from reinventing the wheel, which I think was a really smart idea, and that it also lessens the load of having to learn tech for all these different teachers so mm-hmm. they didn't have to worry quite so much if you didn't feel like you were super comfortable with all these different kinds of tech um instead they're given a lot more support of like okay here are the materials and here's what you need to learn and you don't need to go out and like reinvent the wheel um so i've i've really liked it um but it's been interesting <laughs> so um Tell are we so- also Sorry, go ahead. Like, I was going to say, it sounds like a ton of work for you, though. Oh, my like... gosh. Yes. <laughs> it's been so much. And then thankfully for AP Bio, um, we have more autonomy. So mm. AP teachers are just making their own lessons. So I am making my separate lessons for my AP students. Um, but it's, yeah, it's been a ton of work. But I am, my bio team, the other bio teachers are all so wonderful and so helpful. And so it's been a really positive experience. And we've been kind of using this opportunity to try out some NGSS curriculum because we've been thinking about uh, moving to a more NGSS aligned curriculum for Mm -hmm. next year. So it's been a good excuse to say, well, throw out all that other stuff we've been doing. Let's try something new. And everyone's really liked it so far. Um, So it's, it's been nice because it's, I think it's made us all realize that even if we can make it work on, a digital platform like NGSS just seems like so 
so much more how we all want to move, which is what we were thinking anyway. So it's nice to have some sort of a trial run almost. Wow. So, but yeah. our lessons are uh, mostly asynchronous or they're all asynchronous, but we have a synchronous option is the model we are using. Do you have a, a synchronous schedule like of when you would meet or? Yes. So we have um, like each discipline has a, a block every day. So we have science block and all of the science classes are during science block. So I have to split my block between bio and AP bio. Hmm. And students, if they want to attend, can. Um, you're not supposed to give any sort of like essential instruction during your block. It's most, it's almost more just like office hours every day. And then the lessons are all asynchronous, um, which I think is actually working out. It, after we got through the growing pains, I think it's working out pretty well. Um, I'd say probably about half of my students at least check in during the science block, which I'll take it. I'll hmm. take it. <laughs> um, but about three quarters of them, I think are completing the work, um, which considering, you know, while the grading policies are very uh, lenient this trimester, I think three quarters is actually pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, for me, I've, I've been wondering about I've been, one of my goals. I'm actually tomorrow I will be uh, co-leading a workshop uh, with another with an English teacher from my school. We're doing a sort of a, a distance learning uh, share out, if you will, like, or something like that. It's like a professional development day in house where, um, we've coordinated people who are using different tools are sharing out in little half hour blocks, things that we're doing. And the thing I'm going to be sharing tomorrow is sort of how I use, uh, how, like how I have like small group discussions in synchronous meetings. Uh, and mm -hmm. we use zoom, which has breakout rooms and doing that. Um, and I feel like I have found that, uh, it took me a while to f make my synchronous meetings like worthwhile, like worth attending. I felt like I get a lot more out of if I told my students, go and do X on your own. They could do way more than if I brought them all together <laughs> and, and I could get like I could get like five minutes worth of like activity out of them if I brought everybody together as opposed to I can get a half hour of work with them if I just like post it <laughs> and yeah. get them to do that. So um it's been a that I think that's been a learning curve in terms of figuring out, you know, how to make that synchronous time be, and I don't want to say like more than just a like a an office hours or checking in because I think yeah. there's enormous value um, for students, particularly ones that you have a relationship with, especially at this time to check in with you and see you and you know. Um, I have some kids who like, I have a, a club that like, I, I don't have nothing for them to do. I don't know why they wanted, but they want to have weekly meetings and then they hang out and they, I, I had, like a 40 minute meeting with them today. Um, Cause they just like hanging out and talking. Uh, yeah. <laughs> they, so the social stuff is worth it, but I, I want there to be also a, a little more academic value out of that synchronous time. Cause otherwise I would just do everything asynchronously. Um, yeah. Yeah. How are you, how are you guys uh, scheduled? Do you have to do synchronous lessons or is it more asynchronous? Yeah. So uh, we've moved to a four day student work week and a five day teacher work week. Um, and so we have uh, basically two blocks. We have a, a rot we have a rotating block schedule normally, but we have like seven, you know, a through G blocks in our schedule. 
And so every you we meet A through D on Monday and then E through G on Tuesday and then it repeats um, on Wednesday and Thursday. Um, so you have two windows of time to meet with each of your blocks. Um, and so you have those. You do not need to meet with them, but they recommend that you have at least one synchronous meeting a week. So with my APs, because we're doing AP review, um, I am pretty much using each of those to like I'm meeting with those guys and I'm having them have small group discussions and and they're a very mature group to begin with and they're they're like I get a lot out of those guys they they're 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 fun to spend time with and and that and my freshmen I have usually only been meeting once a week with them because I find that I have a harder time in synchronous meetings with them like moving forward and it's just like it's just a much more um it's a much more reserved group mm -hmm. like academically and emotionally like they are very guarded <laughs> about like they don't they're not big sharers um my my honors and and my my honors freshmen and sophomores that i have in that group they're they're a pretty guarded group um, and I've got some of them who will share and are warm and are happy and, you know, like, you know, we'll talk and do that stuff. But as a group, we have a pretty reserved dynamic. And so we've only been meeting once a week and that's been working pretty well. And they're, you know, they're, they're a hardworking group. They check in, they email questions. They're, they're plugging along really, really well. Um, we've, we've been mixing around, but I'm finding that, um, I wish that we were doing a little bit more experimentation curriculum wise, um, here, but I think I also want everyone to get comfortable with the tools that we're working with from both the teacher and the student side. So there's, mm -hmm. I'm a little reserved about how, like how much to, to venture out and be bold about trying new things, um, either new curriculum modules or new types of things, because I know that there's also a lot of hesitation just in that group. Like there's a lot, they're, they're a very tentative group. They're not a very academically confident group, even though they're very capable. They're they're just they're just younger students, and they don't have a big reservoir of tools to draw from, just because they're younger students. Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, yeah, we've been going slowly. We've done a couple of cool things with them, um, but uh, we're just trying to, I think, really just gently shepherd them <laughs> into into <laughs> June. Like that is sort of our goal. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I will say, I I've been very, I you know, my my kids are they're working their tails off. They're, they're, I think some of them are very hard on themselves. They expect, you know, they kind of expect perfection. Um, that's the thing that mm -hmm. sort of frustrates me for them. Um, and I'm like, you guys are doing great. I, I think I've told them that like a million times in the, <laughs> the last two months, like, thank you so much for how hard you're working. And, oh, I was so impressed by the work you guys are doing. And it's genuine. It's not, you know, artificial, but I think they think that they're like, they hand something in the day after and they're like, oh, I'm sorry this was late. And I was like, it's not late. It's fine. Like, don't worry about it. <laughs> like, I know. I know. I've, I have students doing the same thing who are dealing with heavy life stuff. And they're like, mm -hmm. I'm so sorry, miss. Can I, can I turn this in tomorrow? I'm like, yes, yeah. that is fine. <laughs> Just, yeah. Give yourself a little more grace there and you're yeah. doing amazing. I know. I think it's something about they feel like they have so much more time on their hands. So it feels like they should be doing this above and beyond amazing work and not realizing that just because you're at home doesn't mean that, you know, 
all of a sudden your work becomes three times better because you have like three times more free time, it feels like, even though you don't. I don't know. That's what I'm finding is they all feel like they're wasting their time. And I'm like, no, you're not. You're doing so well. Yeah. Yeah. I actually was, I, I was actually grading, maybe grading is the wrong word. I was providing feedback to my AP students. So we had done a big lab and we were just about to get into the writing up of the lab right before we went on our distance learning. And then we were told no new material. Um, and so I was like, well, what do I do with that? Like, if we were in mm -hmm. class, they would be writing this up, but it is a new document, but is that new or not? And so like myself and my, uh, and my colleague who teaches AP with me, we just were like, let's just like put a pin in this. We'll tell the kids, we'll come back to it. And so when they told us we could move forward, we really had moved to quarter four. And so I was like, I'm going to have you guys write this up. And I don't know how we're, at the time we didn't have a grading policy for quarter four. We're now either a, it's called credit, no credit or a pass no credit like kind mm -hmm. of thing it's not really pass fail they're trying to avoid the word fail um in terms of how they're yeah. freezing no it harm. but yeah so it's sort of a, a pass no credit option uh there and we weren't really sure but um very much like uh paul strode who's out um your way i don't know have mm -hmm. you encountered paul strode yet out in colorado i, I have yes <laughs> yeah uh paul's a dear friend of mine but i basically stole his uh, gradeless system and we've been using it in our labs this year and so I tell them that their work is either complete partial it's a rework or it's missing that's basically the levels and if they're complete it's complete like I you know it's done it's not to say it's perfect but I'm gonna call it complete it's fully done if it's partial here are the areas that really need work and if it's a rework it really needs to get reworked and I'll be honest like the labs compared to what I would have gotten had they written them up and we were in school were not where I would have expected them to be and these are really mm -hmm. really good students but I I did I did provide feedback in the lens of what is it that they're doing and how were they working they were all in their own houses trying to collaborate on a group work document and like, how did that work and that? And so, whereas, you know, this time of year, I would really expect a very polished piece of work. I, I did take into account the fact that like, this is just not a normal circumstance. And, and, um, and I, I think that, you know, one of my kids told me I went, that I went really easy on them. Um, one of the groups that I gave a complete, they're like, oh, you went way easy on us. I was like, I don't know that I went easy on it. I was like, I just took into account the the situation in which you guys were writing this up and right. was this considering the, all of the barriers to complete this assignment? Did you make a level of completeness on this assignment in that context? And my answer was yes. Right. And I said, yeah. and, if, and I was like, and if you got to the rework, you know, again, rework is passing, um, you know, like, you know, as, or a rework is a sort of a, as, as failing rework. You really had to be like missing large swaths of it. And partial was probably a rework under normal circumstances, but there's not normal circumstances. So we're good. So no big deal. <laughs> yeah. So, yep. uh, and they were like, yeah, that seems okay. And then they told me I was being soft, but, um, <laughs> again, my, my AP students are like, they're, they're hysterical and I get along with them. I've been actually playing music. Um, I actually did it for a few times. Uh, David Konefke on Twitter had said this a few weeks ago, I started playing music and, uh, like one of my classes who I have a really good rapport with, like, finally I was like going into the breakout rooms in zoom and I went in there. I was like, do you guys have any questions? <laughs> and then one of the kids, uh, cause like, 
yeah were you playing mac miller before when the media started <laughs> and i was like yes i was <laughs> and i was like i was trying to figure out who hadn't muted and everyone was muted but you and i was like but he couldn't be playing mac miller and i was like why couldn't i <laughs> and i was like i was waiting to see if anyone was going to call me on it so now every day they're like queued up and they're asking me questions and they're like i mean and i've been playing like totally different stuff so like yesterday i was playing in the heights uh <laughs> the soundtrack for in the heights beforehand so i've been like totally mixing up what i play for them uh <laughs> as we come in and my other i've been doing it for all my classes and some classes are talking about it and others are like don't even say anything so it's it's just a really <laughs> funny uh thing that's All fun. right. Well, let's assume that someday we get back into schools, um, whatever time that is, uh, regardless of how uh, how many months it takes for us to get to that point. Uh, what are you uh, looking forward to when you uh, you know in your years to come in the classroom? And you have, I assume, many years to come in the classroom. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm really looking forward to. Um, well, like I said, we're moving towards an NGSS curriculum next year in our biology class. So I'm really looking forward to that and changing the curriculum to just make it more student driven and so much less memorization, which mm -hmm. is so much less fun to teach. <laughs> um, so I'm really excited about making that change. Um, and then further down the line, one thing I really want to try to find a space for both a literal physical space um, and then space in our schedule somehow is I would love to have more opportunities for students to do some sort of research uh, during their high school careers. Um, our students do like a senior project as seniors and um, some of them are able to continue their internships into their senior year and do some sort of research um, at a university. But I think it'd be so fun and uh, enriching to be able to give them a way to do some sort of research within the school. Um, so I'm, that's all big picture stuff. Cause I don't know if we really have the space for that right now, literally. Um, but you know, if you don't dream big, you can't get those things. So that's something I am really, um, looking forward to. And I was supposed to go to the, uh, biology teacher, the NABT meeting in Boston, um, which, you know, didn't yeah, happen. NFDA. Yeah. Yeah. Um, thank you. Uh, sorry. I was supposed to go to that meeting in Boston, but then it, you know, got canceled in April because of all the, the craziness. So I was hoping to, you know, network with some people and see other teachers who had done similar things and start to think about how to build that out in our school. So that's, well, that's the thing I'm most looking forward to. Well, you can tentatively plan to go to Baltimore uh, and go to NABT in Baltimore uh, next November. Yes. It's was... always during our finals, though, is a problem. Oh, because you guys do trimesters. Yeah, we're on trimesters. So I'd, I'd miss grading, and I think uh, that would not that would not fly. That's <laughs> uh, too bad. I, I actually far prefer NABT to NSTA at this point yeah. in my career, although I went to a lot of NSTAs early on, and you're right, you do get a lot of good stuff. Um, but I'll also put a pin in that because when we come back, my pick of the episode will be right up your alley because I, I, I have I something to come back to that. <laughs> <laughs> a little teaser. All right. So uh, when you're not teaching and you're not quarantined um, uh, and you don't sound like somebody who has a lot of free time, but uh, <laughs> what do you like to do when you're not teaching? Yeah, um, I have been trying. But so at the end of my first year of teaching, you know, the year-long reflection, my coach was like, okay, 
here's what you need to do next year. You need to get some hobbies <laughs> that are not teaching. Um, so I took her up on that and um, I started this year doing ballet for Ooh. adults. If you can't see what I look like, cause I, it's a podcast, but I'm, I'm not what you would envision when you think of a ballerina. I'm short and um, squat, <laughs> but it has been wonderful. It's the studio that's um, like only adults and there's people who have done ballet, people who have never done ballet. Um, I've been in classes with women who are 20 and women who are 65. Um, we have two men at the studio. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's been really wonderful. So um, that is the number one thing I'm most looking forward to once our social distancing ends is being back in the ballet studio. Nice. Um, and that's been something that I've really enjoyed doing outside of the classroom. And it's a thing to talk about with some of my students who do ballet. So that's always fun. <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny those little side connections. Like, because, you know, I'm a runner. Um, and I'm like the unofficial mascot of like all of the runners um, in school. <laughs> <laughs> and like, they like message me like, and well, several of them like stock me on Strava, um, which is like a running <laughs> app where they yes. do that. And it's always like funny. It's like, I've got like all these high school, like, you know, runners or former high school runners who are like, they'll, and they like talk to me about my running. They're like, you run a lot. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, you I run it. slow too. But they're like, you're like always running. And I was like, yeah. Um, <laughs> and last year I ran like, I ran a ton last year. I have, I had a little injury at the end of the year. So I actually had a, I've been off to a very bad start uh, to this year, but like last year I ran more miles than I'd ever run before. And I, for most of the year averaged more than 50 mile weeks. Wow. Um, and yeah, and it was, it was part, it was very intentional. I, I was doing it in a particular thing I was working on. I was working on some stuff and I do not run fast. I just run a lot. I was running very regularly. Um, and I had a, well, some goals and some projects and it, and it actually did eventually grind me down to the point where I did develop a little bit of a quad injury, uh, late in the year, but I still do it. But the kids, the kids would, uh, talk to me and then I would say something offhanded to them about like what my runs were or what I was doing. And then they would come back to me the next day and they're like, yeah, I looked you up on Strava and you weren't kidding. And I was like, what, like, you think I'm like, like I'm bragging to high school students about my mileage. Like, <laughs> like it was a very, was, I've had some very funny conversations, but you do develop connections with kids when they know your hobbies and they can sort of see you as a person outside of school. So that's very cool. Yes. yes yeah. I agree. Yeah. All right. So we, before we get to picks of the episode, uh, do you have any questions for me? Um, yeah, I think the, as a, a teacher, the question that is top of my mind is what is next year going to look like? And um, just, you know, what are you thinking? Has your school given you any guidance? Uh, what are you planning? Or are you avoiding all of those thoughts? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> so uh, is my school planning? Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, today we are what the end of the first week of May, and uh, they finally announced what our grading policy will be for quarter three. Um, so right. dealing with dealing with what we're doing quarter one, 2020, 2021 has not come up. Um, I will say there are definitely people who are thinking about it. I've had some uh, informal, sort of off the record conversations with a handful of people who will be the kinds of people who will be in the room when decisions are being made about that sort of thing. Um, so I do not want to, you know 
I do not want to criticize everyone. And I also say that from, I teach in a large district. I mean, my high school is 2000 um, for a suburban school district, a a single high school of 2000, you know, our middle school is about the same size. Our district's about 6,000 students K through 12. Like it's, it's a, it's a big monstrosity to organize and to manage. And um, it's a very, it's a very engaged community. Um, Families (laughs) care a lot about education and there are a lot of opinions and they don't hold back on sharing them. So uh, from that standpoint, it's a very hard district to lead and to make Mm -hmm. policy because whatever policy you make, you're going to get pushback from people who find that your policy decisions have been different. And um, I will say, and I actually was saying this earlier today, um, we have a relatively new superintendent um, who hasn't been there very long. Um, and, uh, I think this is actually the end of his second year, um, which, you know, in a superintendent, in a big district like that, he's, he's still pretty new. Uh, mm-hmm. and I think he's acquitted himself exceptionally well in this time of crisis. So it's, it's for me, I already, I had already sort of formed my opinion of him and I thought he was doing a decent job, but I think he's, he's definitely built, um, some good, uh, goodwill with a lot of people in the district, the way he's handled this. So I, my criticism of not having a plan for next year is not uh, a criticism on any of the leaders who are doing that. But um, I think that the uncertainty of just not really knowing what it looks like is hard for people who are making leadership decisions. Uh, my personal feeling, um, knowing epidemiology and uh, knowing biology and knowing how decisions are currently being made in the United States in the absence of evidence, or in some cases, like, as if the, as if the evidence, well, you know, like I was like screen the month of March, I was like, I kept on shouting at my emails because we would get emails like, you know, we're doing distance learning for two weeks. And at this time, there's no evidence of community spread of coronavirus or COVID-19. And I was like, there's no testing. Like yeah. there's no evidence because there's no <laughs> testing. Like my wife would be like, stop yelling at your computer. And I'd be like, that's why are people telling me that there's no evidence? I was like, of course there's no evidence. You're not running any tests. Like why are you doing that? So, so anyway, I, aside from that, uh, I do not feel like we have adequate evidence to really make a call on this. It is possible that we have massive seropositivity across the country. Um, if you read any of the models, you look at any of the models in the best case scenario, we're going to have like 20 to 30 you know, like, and that's really optimistic, you know, 20 to 30% of the population will have been exposed to this. Um, Mm -hmm. Realistically, the number is going to probably be somewhere between three and 10%, which means we're going to have like, you know, in semi-conservative estimates, you know, like 90% of the population will still be susceptible. We also don't know if you have any like (laughs) immunology after exposure, like, Right. We don't we don't know that. Um, and so if you consider all those facts and you consider how little testing we have um, and the fact that we're not going to know who's been exposed and we are not going to be able to trace things, the idea that we're going to start the 2020, 2021 year and run an entire school year without any disruption whatsoever um, seems um foolhardy (laughs) like it just seems so with that as a a backdrop um i have lots of ideas about um what is it i'm learning during this time and how i might make adjustments Um, i would say that this summer i will have a pretty thought out individual plan of how ap biology will end up getting run in my school with the schedule that I have with my students, how to run those types of things. Um, I will know how to execute AP biology next year if portions of the year are done through a distance learning model. Um, I think that that is something that I have much more control. It's a much smaller team. It's me and one other teacher. 
uh, a teacher who is, you know, my, as I call him, my work husband for a reason. We are like, <laughs> rem, like we're just, we're very close. We're very like-minded in the sense that we have shared purpose. We're very different in a lot of ways, but we've built our, we've built our curriculum collaboratively. We, we have an idea. And I think we're going to be able to come to a consensus that is we're going to approach 2020, 2021. We're going to come up with a way of approaching the year that works regardless of whether we are in person or online or whatever, and we will have a plan mm-hmm. A and a plan B, and we'll 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 know how to roll it. I think it's going to be much harder to get to that space for a general intro honors biology class, um, and so I don't know how we're going to proceed <laughs> for that because I feel like what we've done this year has been a sort of emergency stopgap, and. Um, I would I would like it if we were doing something that was a little bit more evergreen and I feel like I'm learning some stuff, but I also don't feel like we have the pacing or time to really take stock of what we're doing and how people are feeling and, and that sort of stuff. So I think my planning for that is as we close down the year is to really try to come to a sort of an emotional inventory amongst our team of teachers who work together and sort of see where people are and then use that information to plan as we get to August and have a realistic picture of what we're going to be walking to walking into in September. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> yeah, I think we're, we're very much in the same boat that we don't really know yeah. what the start of school year is going to be like, but yeah, you have to plan for the worst, I think. So, yeah, I, well, I, my feeling is that I think that people are going to not plan for the worst. I think people are just going to, you know, the, the phrase is plan for the worst, hope for the best. I think we're just going to hope for the best. And um, I, I, I'm afraid that people are going to not want to do that planning um, out of some almost like superstition. Oh gosh. Yeah. That's I, I am once again, thankful for, I think most of the biology teachers I work with are on the same page. Yeah. <laughs> I do feel like overall biology teachers, at least at my school, I felt like myself and the other um, bio teacher and the other, we have a biochem teacher. We're all in March like, hey, uh, do we have any plans? What's what's the plan? What are we doing? Mm-hmm. Everyone's like, I don't know. No, we haven't heard anything. I'm like, maybe we should make a plan. Mm-hmm. And then everything closed. And it was like, see, I, I told you guys, you should make a plan. <laughs> so I think this time around, um, those of us who are concerned about this are being much more vocal. And I do feel like our administration is listening to us which is nice so they're trying to at least brainstorm ideas mm-hmm. which is which is good and kind of spread the word that uh just planning to be in person for the whole year is not not going to set you up for success <laughs> yeah. i i think we're going to eventually get there um i i think that we are still because there's so many people who are involved i think that um there are people who the emotions are still pretty raw Mm-hmm. And haven't sort of figured it out. Um, also, like Massachusetts is like the number four state in the country in terms of number of cases. Like in Middlesex County, where my school is, the school where I teach, um, is like the highest per capita, highest incidence per thousand people in the state. So there's the the oh. two counties that are well in the lead. So this is touching the lives of our community. Like. There are people in our in the community where I teach who have this. There have been deaths in our community. Um, you know, this is very. I think that this is to say that this is. It, it's 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 too raw to have some of these conversations. Um, mm-hmm. Is appropriate. So I think that we're going to need a little more time and space to get there. 
Um, and the fortunate thing that we have in our careers is that we do have a downtime of summer. We're going to get to yes. June. Everyone's going to be able to take a breath. People are going to be able to pick their head up. They're going to be able to, you know, look and say, all right, what is the picture right now? Let's now we're, we're not on zoom five times a day. <laughs> like, what do we do to get ready for next year? And I, and I do think that at once we get to sort of that space, once we shepherd through the end of the year, there will be the, the time and the space and the ability for people to pick their head up and then think strategically about how to deal with the year. And I, and I think there will be some people having conversations before, but I think it would be probably unrealistic that we'll be having a lot of large scale conversations before we get to that space. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. Well, this has been another uplifting uh, COVID corner. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I mean, like I said, I, I, I am deeply fascinated by the, the epidemiology component of it. So um, there's a part of me that's really enjoyed this, but boy, it's, it is, it's been heavy. Um, so, yeah, it is heavy. And yeah, I think also I've noticed as a, a bio teacher and also as someone who has a PhD in a bio field, apparently a lot of people think I have lots of expertise in this and they keep asking me questions and I'm like, I, I will do my best, but I like, please stop showing me every conspiracy theory. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not true. Yeah. Well, it's, <laughs> so it's, it's been emotionally hard. I feel like for yeah. a lot of people, just for everyone, but that's yeah, one I, thing I've been struggling with. I get, I've had like, well, the funny thing for me is that like, I was like, I was sort of like shutting everything down. Like, three or four days before all the announcements came and people were like looking at me like what are you doing what are you do like why are you doing this and I was like we're not gonna be in school next week they're like what are you talking about and like you know it's just one of those things that I had been following this for a few months and so I gained this like like I think people don't view me for my biology expertise but they view me as like a prophet like <laughs> like oh he knows what's coming and so like they keep asking me questions and I was like oh we don't have any data on that I don't know they're like, what do you mean you don't have data? And I was like, well, I was making predictions because I had data. Like when you have data and you can see models, like the when Japan shut all their schools down, I was like, oh, this is coming. We're closing schools. Mm -hmm. And it was like a couple of stories like that. And I saw a few different other instances that were going on. And as soon as I started getting some other pictures of some stuff that was going on, I was like, oh, this is the this is the trajectory. This is what's going on. I, I started, as I said, I started canceling some stuff. I started moving some stuff around. I started preparing for what ended up happening. And so I think that was a very, it, I, I think I gained, um, I gained some people who keep texting me questions because of that. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, let's transition to picks of the episode. Um, I'm Hannah, you can pick whatever you would like. We talked about a few different things, but um, what is your pick of the episode? Um, so I have this article uh, that I saw on Twitter, <laughs> always seeing great things on Twitter um, from Open Syed. And it just has, I thought, a lot of really nice resources for remote learning. Um, and I feel like I've seen a lot of articles about remote learning recently that are kind of the same stuff over and over again. But this was something I thought was actually pretty useful and pretty thorough um, and had ideas for uh, like setting norms and remote teaching and just a lot of best practices. And it was a lot more detailed than other things I had seen. So I think it's a great resource. I haven't even had a chance to really sit down and look through all of it, but that's on my summer to-do list is to <laughs> sort of read through all of this and think about that as I'm planning for, for next year in this, you know, what if scenario. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I think that's the the several of the things that were on that, and I've seen. You know, I I think of the remote learning things that I've been seeing were like I know Google put out a lot of um, remote learning stuff um, at that time, but this is very different. Um, this is the one that you put out here. Um, which is called uh, staying grounded when teaching remote um, had a, almost like a different focus uh, a little bit like like norms and practices and then also as you said a few handful of resources um, that are some really cool ones so that's a very cool one yeah I thought it was a little more practical than just like hey did you know that ed puzzle is a thing <laughs> yeah so I thought it was helpful that's definitely true all right. Well, my pick is um, a totally like self-promotional, um, <laughs> uh, but it does relate to something you had brought up earlier with the idea of having uh, students do research at school. And uh, that is uh, the Journal of Emerging Investigators. Now, I've picked the Journal of Emerging Investigators as a pick on some past episodes, uh, but specifically what I'm going to put in for this is um, I'm going to put links to uh, right now in our shared doc, there's one article, but I'm actually, by the time this comes out, I will be having hopefully links to two articles that were published this spring by former students of mine. Um, and so uh, while we've been doing this at this time, I have a couple of groups of seniors. These are groups of students who I had during their junior year in AP Biology. And the last thing that they did was sort of this capstone independent research project um, using a model organism. And uh, two of my groups, and I had, I think, 11 groups last year, two of my groups decided that they would try to take their uh, independent projects and write them up as journal articles. And this has been a very, I mean, it's been a year long process of turning their that project mm -hmm. and lab report that they did in classroom into a published journal article where they were had to meet format and it had peer review and they got reviewers and they had to do revisions of reviews and then they got sent to the galleys and they had to do edits on galleys and we are one of them got published a month ago um, and the other one is going to be published any day now and so i'm hoping that by the time this episode comes out i can add the second link uh for those and these are uh, a couple of my groups of students who again not a it's not a trivial thing we realistically probably could have gotten this done in about six months but um <laughs> we we took a little bit longer uh because they are not in my classroom they are students who graduate who are gonna graduate like in a couple of weeks um, and they've been doing this at, on their own time just out in the world uh, and they came together and worked on this so i'm super proud of them but it's also something that students can do as opposed to say a science fair which i think is the way most students work to it this is a, a different way of getting um you know an independent science project and documenting it and sharing it out and accomplishing something along those lines yes and i i love this yeah. so much. I'm so into this. I'm excited to dive into this journal and read more about it. Because um, yeah. I'm all about giving students more opportunities to do research. And I have hesitation sometimes with science fairs because you just hear, it depends so much on who the reviewers are. And I've heard bad things about mm -hmm. feedback. But for students, sometimes it just makes me like, oh, don't tell them that their control was stupid like that's not appropriate <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um so it's nice to have sort of an extra layer of editors in a journal and plus I mean I think writing a paper is such a challenging thing to do and giving students the chance to to learn how to do that in high school I just think that's such an amazing resource and looking through the paper it's 
so amazing. I'm so proud of your students. This <laughs> yeah. is so beautiful. Yeah, the other one is coming out, which will I'll put the link in uh, when I do put my show notes out. Uh, they had to like, they legitimately had they taught themselves how to do an ANOVA in order to do it. Oh. Like they got the review back and they're like, "Is could you run a statistical analysis on this data to say like you made this statement that this appears to be statistically significant? Can you do that?" And they came to me and they're like, "Can we do that?" And I didn't make them do an ANOVA in AP Biology, and I was like sure you could do an ANOVA and so I gave them some of the tools and they did it and then then they had to look up some sort of like a reference table because they got some other feedback from a different reviewer to compare with some other stats and yeah they looked up all the stats and figured it out and yeah the polished final work that they got it was like you know like an A paper that then went through like three rounds of revision on top of an A paper like it's just it's such polished work from high school students I yeah I couldn't be prouder of them so yeah, it's so cool. All right. Well, Hannah, thank you so much for uh, spending the evening uh, chatting with me. This has been a lot of fun and, uh, you know, a lot less stressful than doing a live stream. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> All right. Yeah, well, I appreciate it so much. And like I said, I'm very excited to be involved in this biology teacher community more. So I very much appreciate this opportunity. Yeah, I'll be honest. I was I having worked with you on the live stream and then like uh, and then looked you up. I was like, how has she only been in the classroom for two years? Like she has not come across <laughs> as a second year teacher. So, yeah, only in the high school her. classroom. Yeah, only years. in the high school. That's classroom, what I yeah. like to say. Yeah, 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 definitely. You definitely have uh, way more experience doing other things than in the biology world that that most of us teachers uh, are just envious of at this point. <laughs> All right, let me give my credits. Uh, please subscribe to Life of the School on your podcast player of choice. Uh, should be anywhere you like to find your podcast. Uh, you can go and support me at my and my work by going to patreon.com slash lots. Uh, Patreons uh, chip in a buck or two a month to help offset some costs. And they also get an early release of my episodes. Uh, plus, I post my uh, show notes there. Show notes are also posted on lifeoftheschool.org. Music on this and every episode is provided by Jake Jenkins and X Magicians. You can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Matthew Tweets or at life of the school and you can follow hannah on twitter at hathaway phd so thanks for joining me and i'll talk to everybody next time.